Welcome to church. We've had a, quite a false start this morning for myself, going for people's handshake and then remembering and uh, doing a, a repentance handshake. Um, I have to remind myself to do one of these. It just feels so not us. Um, so we'll have to learn how to do virtual hugs, I guess. I don't know. I was blessed by the music. How about you? Um, I sat down. I didn't know there were two people at the piano the first time. I was listening. Wow, that person has very dexterous fingers <laughs> and long to be able to reach like that. And then I realized it was two of you. Thank you so much for being here and blessing us with the gift of music. For our mission story in Sabbath school, we actually talked about how music is that one universal language that touches our hearts. It uh, crosses languages and cultures. Um, this morning, we're going to have a good... Uh, focus on the Bible. Uh, the Bible gives us many recipes to relate to life here on planet Earth. And one of the most beautiful one is one found in the book of Revelation. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, we are, um, we like studying the book of Revelation. Other denominations do as well. Others are a bit afraid sometimes, apprehensive because of the imagery. They've read it. Maybe some of you have read it. And as you read through the book of Revelation, it's confusing at first, and then, of course, the imagery is not, at, in first glance, uh, very appealing. Beasts, dragons, horns, plagues, etc. Um, but actually, in the book of Revelation, it, all of it was written for churches, actually seven of them. And the very last one, uh, Jesus gives this last church, which is symbolic of our time today, for, Christian, for Christians today. Um, Jesus gives the recipe on how to have the experience of feeling, recognizing how fortunate we are and experiencing happiness. Father in heaven, I pray that what, we, what you have left for us, especially, Lord, in the book of Revelation, um, will bless our hearts, would enable us, Lord, not just simply to understand that you want us to realize how fortunate we are and to experience inner happiness, Beyond understanding that, Father, I pray that we can actually experience it today as we engage your word. May your word engage us. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. Um, I, I do like to teach. I think one of the gifts God gave me when he called me to the ministry is the gift of teaching. And so I do know that participation between us helps engage the brain a little more. So this morning, I'm going to ask that uh, you can do it from your Bible. We're going to read Revelations uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. I'm going to have it on the screen if you want to read along from the screen, or you can open up your own Bible. Um, the version that I have on the screen will be the New King James Version, but you feel free to join along if you have a different one. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of time to look in your own Bible so that we can all together read in unison uh, this uh, last message uh, to the seventh church in the book of Revelation um, so I don't hear any more pages turning, so I think everybody has found Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses four, 14 through 19. So on the count of three, if we could all join in to read along together. One, two, three. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be jealous and repent. That's the recipe for recognizing how fortunate we are and being happy. It's not in the surface, but this morning we're going to have not so much a sermon, but a Bible study. And I want to encourage you, if you hear something that stirs your heart, something that has become a fresh insight into how to experience the richness of the Christian experience, uh, write it, I was going to say on the bulletin, but we don't have one <laughs> this morning. Uh, send yourself a text or something so that it will stay in your mind. These things God wants us to not just experience here in His house. He wants us to take these blessings home with us. So we're going to have a little bit of a background. Uh, we've read through the verses now. And so we're going to kind of rewind and, and review some of these passages and zero in. This morning, we don't have time to do an exhaustive study, but I'm going to focus on how Jesus addresses a church that is in pretty, pretty bad shape. Jesus introduces himself to this Laodicean church with three attributes of himself. He describes himself in three specific ways. He, he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. And because of the briefness of time this morning, we're only going to focus, why does Jesus introduce himself to this church as the beginning of the creation of God? We have to understand that the book of Revelation was written by the same individual that wrote the gospel of John, the apostle John. He also wrote three other epistles, shorter ones, that are also towards the end of the Bible. The Holy Spirit had given John some insights as to the character of Christ and as he understood Jesus, he began to understand human nature. And so when, when John, guided by the Holy Spirit, writes to this Laodicean church, the beginning of the creation of God, I believe he has in mind this expression, the beginning of the creation of God. Why this expression? Because this expression is found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is how John Many uh, scholars feel that, uh, believe that John wrote the Gospel of John after he wrote the book of Revelation, after his exile in the, in the Isle of Patmos. And so for him to have used that expression, the beginning of the creation of God, and then when he begins his Gospel, he begins it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. When he introduces Jesus in the book of Revelation as the beginning of the creation of God, he's not making a statement that Jesus was the first thing God created, but rather that through Jesus, everything that has been created has been created through Christ. Jesus is the beginning of everything we see and everything we know. Everything begins with Jesus. And so when Jesus introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God, we get an amplified understanding of what Jesus was trying to convey by the introduction that John gives us in the gospel. And in the gospel of John, 
um, John highlights some things about Jesus that are simple yet so vital for us as Christians. Jesus is identified as the beginning of the Word of God, that without him nothing that was made came into existence. Without him there's nothing because in him is life. And if Jesus is not somewhere, there is no life wherever Jesus is not. Without him, there's nothing. And that expression is key because Laodicea has said something, I have need of nothing. This is the first issue Jesus is relating to by describing himself as the beginning of the creation of God. He is uh, confronting this statement this church is convinced of. So then because you are lukewarm, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of what, church? Nothing. Not even Jesus. Not even Jesus. This church feels that it is self-sufficient in and of itself. Can a church like that truly exist? Can individuals that adhere to the Christian faith actually come to express such things? We may not say them outwardly, but just because we don't say it doesn't mean we don't believe it. There's something that speaks louder than words. What, are, what is that, church? With our actions, we could be declaring to the world, to our families, to our coworkers, to ourselves, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. When I was Bible working, church planting in Columbus, Ohio, Part of my job entailed doing something that I dread. I'm an introvert, extremely shy. Gunther mentioned he's a sensitive individual. So am I. Uh, When people slam doors in my face, I want to go home and not go out for a couple of days. And I had to do door knocking and ask people if they wanted Bible studies. It didn't really matter the demographic, the social demographic of where I knocked on doors. You want to take a wild guess what was the number one reason people gave me as to why they would turn down my offer to study the Bible with them personally? Busy was number two, but good one. That was almost a tie with this top one. That was number three. (laughs) This is personal. That may be your experience, but in my experience... That was number two. Why? I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm not bad like my neighbor down there. So thank you for your offer, but I think I'm good. I go to church regularly. Great. So what part of the scriptures do you love to study? All of it. Awesome. You've read through the whole scriptures. What have been some passages that have really stirred your heart, spoken to your soul? God helps those that help themselves. We may not say it but there's something that speaks louder than our words. And though we may not be like those individuals that turn down these offers for free Bible studies in their homes, when I wake up in the morning and I'm more interested in the weather, 
coronavirus, the political primaries. I'm more interested in the news, my Instagram, my Facebook feed. I'm more interested in a thousand not bad things, but not Jesus. John says, in the beginning was the word. Without him, there was nothing. Because in him is life. I have need of nothing, yet the gospel of John says that you cannot afford to, to embrace that belief. You cannot afford, I mean, uh, Laura spoke about, you know, we can be carriers of this corona thing for two days to 21 days. The, the, the issue with this church, the difficulty that Jesus has with this church is that Jesus said is, you don't know. You don't know you are carrying something, something that, yes, will affect you. There is no uh, human-developed immunity against what Jesus is warning this church against. And, yes, this is contagious. The Laodicean spirit, this lukewarm Christianity, is extremely contagious. During the Sabbath school, Ovidio mentioned about how are we supposed to relate to new Christians. Well, I think we don't have to wonder too long. All we have to do is look at the, 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 the relationship of parents and children. If I were to tell my daughter, eat your broccoli, eat your tomatoes, eat your asparagus, while I eat my ice cream and my cookies and my whatever, honey buns, how many veggies is my daughter going to eat? No, because she's going to see that daddy says something but does something else. And new church members will model their spirituality but those of us that have been at it for a while. They'll think, oh, that's, that's what Christianity is like. Well, that's what it is like. Not when we're sitting in a pew, but that's what Christians talk about during potluck. Oh, I see. This is what Sabbath is all about. This is what Christianity is all about. And if at the end of the day, new members in any church, after looking at the seasoned Christians, at the seasoned members, can say something of the sort of Christianity is this, Christianity is that, we would certainly want that anyone that comes as a new member, as a visitor to the Catholic church, can say it's about Jesus. But because I look at so-and-so, because I hear the conversations, their spiritual influence is letting me know that at the end of the day, it's about Jesus Christ. Without him, there's nothing, because only in him can we find life. May anyone that steps into our church influence leave with the conviction, only Jesus Christ, only in him, because without him, there's nothing. This is the issue Jesus has with his church. So then because you are lukewarm, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is, this is, Jesus is not saying you are behaving bad. What Jesus is saying is you're believing wrong. You're self-deceived. We, we as Christians sometimes become fixated and obsessed with um, modifying behaviors, when Jesus is trying to get to the root of behaviors, which really are beliefs and attitudes, that's what drives your behavior. That's why you try to change certain things about your life, but you change them short term. They only last for a little bit because what lies underneath has not been reached by Christ. You are trying to bring spiritual life by yourself. That is an impossibility 
It's an impossibility. This church does not know that it has a lot except Jesus. And because it doesn't have Jesus, it has nothing. It has nothing. So then because you are lukewarm and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, yet you say, I have need of nothing. Jesus is saying, I need to help you. I need to help you identify what your true values and priorities are. Because though you may take time on the weekends, though you may take some time to enter into a building on a regular basis, that is not the essence of Christianity. We concluded last week with that appeal in the sermon. Christianity cannot be diluted to something you do on the weekends for a couple of hours in a building that is actually mostly passive. Are you, are you following, church? This is not the essence of Christianity. This is not the substance of Christianity. Jesus has a hard time relating with this church. Now we're going to do an exercise, and again, I'm going to need your participation in this. Here's a list of things that Jesus finds wrong with um, the church of Laodicea. Um, oops. Uh, ah, I'm giving you all the answers. Wait. Okay, I gave you the first two. Okay, well, you'll, you'll see what I was trying to do. I was going to ask you, I pressed the wrong button. This little happy guy here, he is spiritually hot. Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold. He doesn't say lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold. So, but I want us to, you, you're going to tell me poor is a pretty absolute. Um, our head elder, Bob, told us about a man that was poor at GYC. Now, you can, you're poor. So that's an absolute. And the opposite of being poor would be rich, which is what Jesus wants, right? He says, buy from me, not zinc, not copper, gold. I want you to have a rich spiritual experience, but you can only get that from me. So Jesus wants us to be rich. The next one, would seeing, would that belong to someone that is cold spiritually, lukewarm spiritually, or rich spiritually? Where would see belong? Rich. And it's, it's an absolute. Either you can see or you cannot. Uh, blind goes then to cold. Cold. What about naked? What about clothed? Rich. Now look at the two that are left over. Emotions. Jesus goes from um, metaphors, because we're not literally poor, blind, or naked. Those are spiritual conditions. But he leaves out two words that are not symbolic or metaphorical. They're actually emotional. The emotion, the feeling of, of recognizing I feel wretched inside. I feel miserable. I am miserable inside. It's a condition largely of emotions, but it, of course, involves other aspects of ourselves. And Jesus, if you read carefully, for the poverty, he gives gold. For the blind, he gives anointment. For the naked, he gives clothing. But for these two, he gives nothing. Is it that Jesus cannot solve this problem? Or is it that we solve our emotional, spiritual illnesses by not trying to solve our spiritual, emotional illnesses. Most of our spiritual laxities are based on emotions. Pastor, I just don't feel like praying. 
Pastor, I just never really had the passion for opening the Bible. I struggle with feeling like having devotions. I've already been telling you this, and I'm going to continue repeating it to you. You, you need to resist uh, coming to the belief that your spiritual Christian life depends, if anything at all, on your emotions. I am a dad whether I feel like it or not. My girls do not give me an option. I am a husband whether I feel like it or not. And if you're a Christian, Christianity is a choice based on love. At the end of the day, you will only do what a Christian ought to do as a choice. In fact, and you'll hear me say this time and time again in my sermons, most of what you will choose to do as a Christian will actually go against your feelings. Because Christianity is an extremely counterintuitive worldview than anything humanity could ever conjecture on their own. So, these are two concepts of miserable and wretched. Actually, that's the lukewarm experience. You're poor, blind, and naked, you are cold. You're rich, you can see your clothes, you're hot. So, what is lukewarm? And I'm going to tell you right now, we want to see it in the Bible in just a little bit. This is lukewarm. I used to think lukewarm was the 50-50 Christian. I was the, the one foot in the church, one foot in the world. No, no, no. The reason one foot is in the world and one foot is in the church is a self-deception. There are no 50-50 Christians. And this condition is really an individual that this is their true condition, but they are convinced this is their condition. That's a lukewarm individual. Lukewarm Christians don't exist. That's why Jesus doesn't give that as an option. It's not because he doesn't want you to be a lukewarm Christian. It's because it's non-existent. Jesus says, I wish you were cold. I can work with that. And I wish you were hot. I can lead you to be that. But you're cold, thinking, self-deceived, thinking you're hot. You're hot spiritually. We do not cure spiritual misery and wretchedness by addressing the emotional aspects of our spirituality. And yet many Christians, most of the things that we do, I don't feel like going to church. I haven't felt like going to church in years. Welcome to the club. As a pastor, there are times where I feel like, Lord, I don't want to, I don't feel. I'm exhausted. I'm drained. And I'm the pastor. (laughs) And I have to preach, Lord. You will never fix your emotions by trying to fix your emotions. In fact, the more you obsess as as far as trying to feel like coming to church, I want to come to a church that makes me feel this or makes me feel that, you're setting yourself up for failure. And Jesus doesn't want you to have a failing spiritual experience. Jesus wants to offer you something infinitely better. Jesus wants your spiritual experience to be rich, personal, untouchable by the experiences around us, untouchable by things that may happen in church. Now, we we had this um, read to us of how we can transition from being a, a cold Christian into a hot Christian by three words that we're going to define this morning. We already looked at the lukewarm, and I already told you what it is, and we're going to see it from the Bible right now. Gunther read this, read this passage from us. 
And Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in who? In themselves. It sounds a lot like Laodicea, doesn't it? I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. They have come trusting in themselves that they were righteous. And if we were to assign a spiritual temperature, what temperature would a righteous person be? Cold or hot? Hot. So here it is. Here's someone who trusts in themselves to be spiritually hot. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with God. There's no Jesus. There's no God in his life, in his worldview. It's all up to me. Pray with himself saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What church talks like this? I am rich. I am increased in goods. I have need of nothing. This is the Laodicean prayer right here. This is a Christian that has come to trust in himself for righteousness, that I can somehow make myself spiritually hot. The Pharisee is a lukewarm because, let me ask you, is he spiritually hot? Spiritually, he's how? cold, but he believes he is spiritually hot. That's a lukewarm Christian, a Christian that thinks just like the people that I knocked on the doors, would you like some Bible studies? Uh, I, I go to church already, thank you. And when I would press on them, I, uh, the first couple of times I always like, oh man, you know, that's good. But then I got suspicious, a lot of awfully good people in this neighborhood. And none of them want to study the Bible? So when I would press them, I know that when people tell me, oh, I like the whole Bible, they probably have read very little, if any, at all of it. I already know that. When people cannot tell me what passages of Scripture have helped sustain them through the illness, have helped sustain them through the crisis, what promises of God have become real in their lives, there is no Jesus in their lives. A lot of good Christians. There's a lot of individuals who think themselves to be Christians because of their own goodness. And there's nothing that we can produce that can replace the righteousness of Christ, the goodness of Christ. And that's the appeal with this church. But then we have this other guy, someone that we would have said, man, that guy is beyond lukewarm. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a what? If we were to assign a temperature to that word sinner, what would it be, spiritually hot or spiritually cold? And Jesus can work with cold. Jesus cannot work with an individual that has apathy and spiritual indifference. And that's what this church has. Jesus, there's, there's nothing that Jesus cannot do to save someone else. Just like there were no illnesses. I mean, when Jesus raised someone from the dead, that covers every illness. Amen? I mean, there's just nothing he cannot do, beyond illnesses even. But he cannot save someone that doesn't sense their need of being saved. He will appeal. He will passionately entreat. But beyond that, the choice is left with the person. This individual came to church probably not feeling like coming to church, right? His feelings probably were not what drove him to church. He probably didn't feel like praying because he's not even looking to heaven. 
And in his prayer, all he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. And Jesus says, the one that didn't feel like coming to church, the one that didn't feel like praying, but prayed, I turned him, I changed him from being spiritually cold to being spiritually hot. This man went home righteous before my eyes. Before the eyes of the church, before the eyes of his family, before the eyes of the community, he may still be unchanged, but in my eyes, I have implanted in his heart righteousness and holiness. I long for people that recognize their spiritual poverty to come to me that I may make them rich. I yearn for that. When you don't feel worthy because of the choices and the paths and the, the, the decisions we made in the past, in proportion to your unworthiness is your proportion of your need of Jesus. And Jesus will never turn you away when you come to him. We have much to say and we don't have time. This individual was justified and made spiritually hot. So now we know what a lukewarm Christian is. It's not a Christian that is a Christian sometimes and sometimes not. Those are symptomatic of someone that is not yet a Christian but thinks he's a Christian. I already told you a little bit of my journey. I was baptized at 11, but I did not get converted until I was 27. I was a cold Christian thinking I was hot. And I realized that our pressure that sometimes we can put on people to get baptized is, is unhealthy for them. It's actually injuring them because they've been baptized and now Satan can say, you're, you're good now. But listen, if your life has not changed through the conversion of Christ in your life and you get baptized, that is extremely dangerous for you because you'll think that you've had complied with the requirements when in reality you haven't been changed at all. And you'll sit in church thinking, yep, done that, been there. I can move on. What Jesus has to say to this church is, you may be able to move on from your career to your hobbies when you retire. You may be able to move from one career to another. You may be able to move from one town to the other, but you will never be able to move over from needing me. You will never, ever stop needing me. And Satan wants you to believe that. Maybe not with your words, but with our actions. When you look at the word miserable, there's only two places where in the Greek that word is found. In the Revelation, chapter 3, and in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and this gives us a biblical definition of what God, Jesus, was trying to convey to us about this church's condition. This church says, I am miserable. You're wretched. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most, the New King James translates it as pitiable, but the Greek word is the exact same one that is in Revelation 3.17, where Jesus says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. That experience of being spiritually miserable is not that you walk around with a big gray cloud with rain coming at you all day long. Paul tells us why this experience of misery is present. This individual has hope in Christ only when? In this life only. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We may have some visitors here that don't know what that name means. Seventh-day, as a church, we believe our origins are with God. God created everything. We believe we are created in God's image. 
We believe that God created in, as, literally how it says it in the Bible. And so our origins are God. Adventist points us to the second coming of who? Jesus Christ. So the, the Adventist church has this panoramic view of what entails Christianity. Everything be, begins with God and everything will end with God. The, the experience of sin that begins in Genesis chapter 3, it was uh, addressed and attacked by God, and he was successful in fulfilling that promise through Christ. But the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, was to pay for our sins. The second coming of Jesus is to eradicate sin forever from our lives. That's what Seventh-day Adventist means. We get our identity from God our Creator, and we look forward to seeing Him again. Amen? That is a synthesis of our names. But Seventh-day Adventist Christians in this context are only seventh days. The Adventist part has become faded, worn out, spiritual white noise. And I'm going to tell you what that means. My dad became a Christian uh, in his mid-twenties, and he became a missionary, a literature evangelist. And he would go from town to town in Argentina and then Bolivia and then here in the States. And one of the catchphrases was this, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming. How many of you guys have heard that phrase? How many of you have heard that phrase from someone that today is dead? And if you ask that person that told you Jesus is coming soon, do you think Jesus will come in your lifetime? Likely, that person said, yes. And because you've heard it so much, and because you've heard it so much, it's become spiritual white noise. You guys know what I mean when I say white noise? It's like when you ignore your alarm. Even though it's still going, it's faded into the, your, your psychic background. You no longer hear it anymore. It's like ignoring a fire alarm. But the Jesus is coming soon can remain a vibrant reality. Even if my grandpa who brought me to Jesus, who say that, would say that all the time, he rests in Christ today, that phrase that he told me can still mean and have as much passion and conviction and desire behind it as when he would say it. As, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are invited by the Scriptures, we're invited by the Lord of the Scriptures to surrender our very tiny, puny, limited view of our 70 years here on planet Earth. Because the reality is this. It hit me like a ton of bricks when it, when it dawned on me. Because Satan began to oppress me with those thoughts and discourage me about Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon. You know, when... When I started dating Deline, she lived in Columbus, Ohio, and, and I was in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It was a six-hour drive, and on the weekends, I would finish my nursing training and try to do as much of my homework as possible so that I would be clear during the weekend. And that six hours felt like a year on the road, especially in the Pennsylvania turnpike. But what kept me pressing the metal to the pedal and ignoring my bladder so I could get to Columbus, Ohio faster was the anticipation of being with the lean again. The distance made me want to drive faster. So when it comes to me staying spiritually passionate, there is in me a desire to be with someone that I have fallen in love with. 
the lack of anticipation of the coming of Jesus is usually in proportion to the lack of love I have for him. And when I begin to sense within me a waning, yeah, Jesus is coming soon, sometime. But in the meantime, this life becomes way more interesting, way more appealing, and I want to stay. You know, Israel suffered a lot when Babylon came, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took everybody captive to Babylon. They were in horrendous shape, afraid, terrified, and repentance. But the years and the decades went by, and they got accustomed to Babylon. Babylon was not a difficult city to get accustomed. They had a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of prestige. And if you got educated, Nebuchadnezzar was of a policy, I'll, I'll send you and I'll use you. Just be obedient and subservient to me. And so 70 years go by, a generation. And the call says, go back to the promised land. Go back to the land your father gave you. And you know what the Israelites said? Nah, I got my house here. It's almost paid off. I'm almost in retirement, and I was able to buy a house next to a golf course. Can you believe that? I bought it when the market crashed. This is a perfect timing, Lord. No, no, not yet, please. Five more years and I retire, Lord, please. I remember during my unconverted years, I'm from Argentina, and every culture has their real religion. And in Argentina, it's soccer. That's our real religion. And I remember during my unconverted years telling the Lord, Father, Argentina made it to the semifinals, and it's against Germany. Can you please come after the World Cup ends? <laughs> I've converted since. <laughs> But as I look back, I think, really, Ariel, you wanted Jesus to postpone ending illnesses, cancers, brain tumors, leukemia, Alzheimer's, blindness, illness, starvation. You want Jesus to prolong that over soccer. That's the conclusions. That's the way we live when Jesus' second coming is not in our worldview. It's not in our radar. It does not direct us. It is not our North Star. And it can happen a lot easier than we think. But this is a sobering reality that the Bible presents to us. We need to digest this. No one here present here this morning will have to wait any more than where you're at in your life. I'm 47 right now. The likelihood is, is that even if I take care of myself and I do everything right as far as diet and exercise, I won't have to wait for the second coming of Jesus beyond 40 years. Because the moment I die, the next thing I'll know I will see is that event. Amen? Are you following? So the reality is, is you're only asked to wait for the second coming of Jesus for your lifetime. What Satan was trying to deceive me into thinking was, man, what if Jesus comes 200 years from now? I'm not going to be around 200 years from now. I'm only going to be around here for another 30, 40 years. And then whatever happens 200 years from now will happen that second after I die. And if I am not living with that worldview, my experience is that of misery, of indifference, of being driven by my feelings, being dictated how, what I will do as a Christian, what I will not do as a Christian, by my feelings. And a Christian that lives by his feelings is destined to have an experience of misery. 
of wretchedness. And what is wretchedness? When earthly pursuits are the all-in-all all that affect my values and priorities, that leaves the Christian hollow, restless, and ultimately hopeless, ultimately miserable. And I see a lot of Christians restless. Uh, what's the next thing? I need to upgrade my phone. What's the next entertainment thing? What is the next sport thing? I believe that in God's providence, this virus may be giving us a respite from the rat race of all those idols that we pursue. Uh, as I became a culture to American culture, I realized soccer, we had World Cup every four years. But here in America, basketball season and baseball season and golf season and whatever other seasons, they all kind of overlap one right after the other. And now there's nothing. There's no NBA. There's no golf. What are you going to watch on ESPN? What are you going to watch? Jesus is giving us as humans time to reflect and say, what has my life become? What am I pursuing? What are my priorities? Do I feel misery now that there's nothing going to happen here on earth? Does it not excite me that we have eternity to look forward to with Jesus Christ and all of our loved ones? The, the, the call to Laodicea is a call to a church that has forgotten their master, their husband is coming back to get his bride. It's a call to fall in love with Jesus once again. Because the first church, Jesus had issues, not of behaviors or theology, but of saying you've left your first love. And it's showing with this church. It's forgotten that Jesus is coming again. The last, as we conclude this morning, is the experience of wretchedness. Again, these two words are only used in one other place in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17, and in Romans 7, 24, when Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? You know, not every Christian really is happy, lukewarm. When I became in my early 20s, I hated myself. I hated myself. I worked in a secular setting with individuals that made no profession of Christianity whatsoever, and they were happy. You know why they were happy? Because what they did did not violate their conscience. But everything I did violated my conscience, negated. I would come to church on the weekends, profess, all to Jesus I surrender. Come Sunday morning at the mall, I would deny those words wholeheartedly, consistently. I didn't surrender a thing. I didn't surrender my girlfriends. I didn't surrender my money. I didn't surrender my time. I didn't surrender any of that. And I hated myself. I hated myself for being a, a, a lukewarm Christian because I began to see other Christians. I began to see Christians my age that would forego a year of college to go door knocking, what my dad did for a living, and they would do that in horrible neighborhoods. And I remember a kid from Australia that came with this large group to our Harrisburg church. Our church was big enough that we could house them. I think we have that too here, that we house LEs from time to time. And this Australian kid, I was like, he's got to be fake because he seems so real. He's got to be faking it. No one loves Jesus like that. I had never seen someone my age so committed to the Lord. So to me, I assume he was faking it like me. But he was real. One evening we were there. I was socialized. I was the youth leader of the church. Like I told you, the Jonah sermon, God put me there to convert me because <laughs> I needed it. 
And this Australian kid comes, and his eyes are, are red, and he calls some people over. He called me over, and he just fell on his knees, and he had spent two hours with one individual who was dying from cancer. And he pled with tears that he would accept Jesus as his personal Savior, and the man said no. Kicked him out of his house. I, but he said, I could see the struggle. I could see there were times that he was softened. He would yield to the convictions of the Spirit, and he was almost ready to say, I, 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 I confess I'm a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But he was so proud. He was so proud years of justifying himself before others. He was so difficult to now change. So he's like, can we please, please pray and intercede for the salvation of this man? And as he was praying, pouring his heart out, sobbing for this man, I said, Lord, I, I want something like that. God was opening my eyes to how poor and blind and naked I was. To the church, I seemed so gleaming, so perfect, ideal boy. But I loathed myself. That's the misery and the wretches that Jesus doesn't want anyone to have. And the cure is him. Here is him. These individuals discern what is good, desire to do good, but are powerless to be good. So they surround themselves with many or few external rules to compensate for their inner spiritual failures. So Jesus says, I don't want you like this. I don't want any of my children to ever have experiences like this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And we're going to have focusing as, as we close this morning on this last part. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This eye salve for me became a, I didn't understand what is that. And this morning, we don't have time to look at the other three, but we're going to spend time through this journey of what is this ISAF that allows me to see myself and Jesus with clarity. This is, my, this is me when I was uh, studying to be a Bible worker at Mission College of Evangelism, similar to the AFCO that we have today uh, Amazing Facts College of Evangelism or Arise Institute. Uh, actually, this was the, the original one. And this is Mount Rushmore in the, in, my, in the background. I loved those years being there. Made a lot of good friends with awesome testimonies of God saved them. These are some friends of mine. Um, because we were so far removed from uh, technology or things like that, you still have fun. And I realized I didn't need television or blockbuster to have an enjoyable life. Uh, actually, most of the fun that we had, we had in God's playground, nature. Nature just affords so many fun things to do. And sometimes you, you discover new things. So this is Creek. I'll tell you the story of how I was rebaptized there in another sermon. But at this Creek, um, during the springtime and the summertime, it would grow this really mossy um, foundation, this plant. Um, and I don't know, don't ask me where we got the idea. I guess we were just wanting to do something fun. And some friends of ours, we, we got together and we found that you can fling that thing pretty good. And so we discovered that flinging it was okay fun. It was way more fun to sop it up with the muggy, the, the muddy, miry mud at the bottom of that riverbed. And uh, the best mud was found where I am, right there. 
underneath that bridge, you would take a nice wad of that moss, whatever plant it was, and you would have to almost dunk yourself completely and just soak it up and then, you know, let the mud get richly embedded in there. And you, bl- you fling it and, and just blast it. Of course, we would have a lot of fun. Um, and so once we got to discover where that secret place was, everybody would run with two, three watts of that mossy stuff, and we would all soak it with the mud and, and fling it at each other. And uh, this is a good commercial for Ajax, right? Or Clorox bleach. Um, I had a blast. And I was learning to have so much good fun, fun that you can laugh and not feel guilty about, fun that you know the angels are laughing and smiling and approving of what you're doing. Um, so since we had so much fun that day, word got out. And some other guys and other friends wanted to join us. But the next day, it turned a little different. They brought new friends. And um, these little girls, one of Gunther, the young, Gunther's youngest daughter reminds me of one of these little girls. She's a fireball, a firecracker. And um, they could fling that thing like they were cannons. <laughs> And uh, as I was sopping up this really big, honky moss thing with a lot of mud, I was like, oh, I can't wait to use this. When I got up to fling it, pa, right on my eye, a gallon of mud felt like it went inside my eyeball. And as I, it made me dizzy too because it was thrown hard. I found out later it was a little girl. I thought it was one of the guys that joined us, Jonathan. As I was recovering from the bang of the moss, um, my eye wouldn't open. And I instinctively threw more muddy water <laughs> into it from the river. And then I'm realizing, ah, uh, this is actually making things worse. So I said, stop, guys, stop, stop, stop. Um, I got something, and everybody went, ah! looked at me, and it, my eye was puffy because it was full of mud underneath my eyelids. So I'm like, what? What's happening? Tell me. Is my eyeball hanging? What's going on? Get him out. Get him out. They get me out of the river, and thankfully my eyeball was still inside. So they um, put me in this position and got some fresh water out of the well. They had a well there, beautiful, delicious, sweet water. But you don't put that in the eyeball like that. It burns. Uh, You have to put a little salt in it. Otherwise, your eyeball is like, ah, which is what happened to me. They, they opened the eyeball, and it was all this. They were like, ah! and they're like, oh, what's happening? And so they poured this whole jug of water inside my eye, and they got the big chunk out, but pushed the rest of it further in. So I'm like, stop. Uh, no, not, this is not working. Put the jar away. So they drove me to the clinic. We had some physicians there, nurses, and a, and a dentist who was so gentle. He, he built his entire practice and that he could poke you and you never even felt it. Very gentle. Most of them from Loma Linda that had retired and now wanted to serve the Lord uh, in this, this way. So they brought me to the clinic and none of them knew what to do with me. They did tell me to close both eyes because I had the eyes shut. It wouldn't open. My eyelids would not respond to my voluntary command. Open. Uh-uh. We're not. It hurts. To me, it felt like I had broken glass inside my eye. And every time this eyeball moved, this one did too. So they're like, close both eyes. Um, so then I, I'm lying there with muddy, dirty clothes in one of the massage tables that I would give people treatments. And I'm thinking, Lord, am I going to lose my eyesight? 
We're just having fun. What's going on? This lady here, um, Mrs. Hopkins, um, her son was one of the ones that was playing. I thought it was him that flung that thing at me. And she was there, and she was a mom, and she was a nurse. And it's an awesome combination to have a mom nurse taking care of you because moms know things that they don't, they don't teach you in nursing school. She said, I know what to do because the dentist guy went and got a syringe thinking that's going to help, but he was so gentle. And so the, 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 the young lady here, Melissa, she was a, a, a younger nurse. She's like, give me that, sir. And she turned it into a super soaker. And chunks of mud was flying all over the place from out of my eyeball, but also they were driving the stuff deeper, the finer stuff. So uh, Mrs. Hopkins runs to the kitchen and comes with a bag of, I, I didn't know what it was, I found out later, flax seeds. So if this ever happens to any of your children, God willing, it never does, <laughs> now you know what to do. She told Melissa, the nurse, put these in his eyeball. So Melissa never done this. You don't learn this in nursing school. So how do you do that, right? From very high up, right? No, you don't do it from high up. You do it very close. And she did it from high up, and I'm trying to keep my eye open as I'm seeing these seeds from three feet high falling into my eye, and it was an exercise of the will. So Mrs. Hopping was like, be merciful. You don't have to go so high. Just gently tuck them in. And she, they tucked a nice wad of flaxseed inside my eye. They pulled my eyelashes and closed it. And then they said, uh, we need to get you to your room. You need to take a really hot shower. You're starting to shiver. And your lips are starting to turn purple. You're at the verge of uh, hypothermia. You need to go to your room. So they took me to my room. Mrs. Hopkins said, just... Try not to do nothing. Just take a shower. And so with one eyeball, I was trying to shower myself, and I said, I'm skipping the shaving part. Um, and I was reviewing the whole day, like, Lord, why all of this? This is weird. So I did what I did every night, which I never did before my conversion. Before my conversion, after my day of hard work, I would decompress in front of the television and allow the world to fling mud into my eyes. Mud that would qualify me spiritually to be blind. But now, I open the Word of God. I was going to have my evening devotions. I would begin the day with the Lord, with his, the Word, and I would finish the day reading the Scriptures. And as I was reading the Psalms with one eye, all of a sudden, I felt something oozing out of my eye. And when I went like this, it's one of the flax seeds. But it wasn't just the flax seed. The flax seed, how many of you guys are familiar with flax seed? What happens when you put flax seed in water? How does the water turn into? It turns like egg white, right? Like this very soothing lubricant inside my eye. My eye wasn't hurting anymore. And I hadn't noticed. And I'm moving this one around and this one's moving and there's no pain. And when I looked at that flaxseed and I held it to the light, the, the little drippy fluid part, that was my tears with the seed. And that lubricating liquid was trapping every little fragment of dirt out of my eye. The whole night, little by little, each time a seed came out, it brought out what was hurting me was not allowing me to open my eyes and have eyesight. 
little by little. By morning, I woke up, and all these seeds were around my face, and I washed them off, and my eye was completely free from every grain of that miry mud. Not one single grain was left. I felt no pain. It was blood, red bloodshot. It was, you could tell there had been trauma to the eye, but no more. From now on, my eye could heal because the seed had taken out everything that was injuring me and causing me to be blind. That's one of the pictures. I'm glad someone took a picture. At first, I was like, I don't like these pictures. Uh, but I'm glad someone took them because every time I become laxed or too busy, God reminds me of that mud experience. The seed ointment is the seed. The spiritual ointment for the eyes is the seed. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. In Him was life. Jesus says, the seed is what, church? The Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful. If I abide in you and my words abide, if I abide in you, if my words abide in you, Jesus centers your thriving, rich spiritual experience hinges upon the proportion in which you expose yourself to the seed, the Word of God. This is what will search you. It will come alive inside of you. When Mrs. Hopkins and Melissa was, were putting those seeds inside of me, I thought, I'm respecting her as a mom. But now the problem seems to have gone a little bit worse because I see those things are pointy and sharp. They're putting sharp, pointy things inside of me. What is this mom doing? This is so counterintuitive. And it may not make sense to you, but I have to tell you this. If you commit, in spite of your feelings, if right now, if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart, and you don't want to be poor, you don't want to find yourself being lukewarm, you need to expose yourself to the seed. It's the seed that will take away the crud from our hearts. It is the Word of God that becomes alive in our minds that begins to erase the chapters that has polluted us and, and made us regret things of our past. You cannot cleanse yourself anymore than I could have cleansed my eyeball. It had to be something from the outside introduced to me, something that when it came in contact with my tears, it cleansed. There's a song, a gospel song that I heard in California that said this, the, the stanza said this, He washed my eyes with tears that I may see. Have any, have you, any of you heard that song before? He washed my eyes with tears, but those tears need to be accompanied with the Word of God. Because as the Word of God begins to reveal to you your true motives, your true condition, Jesus doesn't leave us wretched and miserable. He wants to remove those experiences, and He wants you to experience how fortunate you are to have a faithful sa Savior that loves you and is committed to your salvation. Jesus is not committed to you having a job. Jesus is not committed to you having everything that you want in this life. Jesus is committing to saving you for eternity. That's what he wants most. Amen? And many of us may not appreciate that right now, but when we are there on that side of eternity, you'll be glad he has taken things out of your life. You'll be glad that this coronavirus has given you Time off from the NBA, time off from those things, time off from maybe your job, time off from your school, but it is still your choice what you will do with that free time. Now is the time, more than ever, 
that we as Christians should stop trying to be Christians in our own strength and come to the living Word of God. It is here where you will find spiritual life. The Word became flesh, in Him was life. He is the beginning. Without Him, there is nothing. Without the Word of God in my life, if you abide in me, says Jesus. Therefore, they said to Him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus, he has opened my eyes. One thing I know, that though I was blind, how many want to see this morning? How many want Jesus to open your eyes, to see him, to see him through your word? And I'll be honest with you, if you have never opened this book at first, you may be like, Pastor said there'll be awesome things. I don't see too much. Give it time. It took time for the seed to do its work inside my eyeball. And if I would have said five minutes later, no, take them out, take them out, it's not working, what would have happened? you got to give the Word of God time in your mind. you got to give it a day, two days, a week, two weeks. But eventually, without you realizing it, it's changing you. It's changing your desires, as we were talking about this morning in the Sabbath school. It will awaken inside of you the capacity to say no to the things right now you're helpless to say no to, and it will give you more longings for the things that you know you should be saying yes to, but you don't. The Word of God is crucial in you experiencing conversion and transformation in your life. You have to commit to saying, Lord, not by might, not by power, but by through your Holy Spirit, enabling me to understand your Word. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see. I want that experience. I want that experience anew. We have a closing hymn, 181. I want to invite you to stand with me. This is a song asked by someone that probably doesn't see, but it's a question that is answered at a chorus every time. Does Jesus care about my fear, my, my past? 